it seems to be completely the opposite at the moment. You know, if you just look on Netflix and all the amazing sitcoms that have come out now just in the last year, and you see that kind of talent at the fringe, and then you wonder, well, why is it not, um, you know, making a transition from live to, you know, to sitcoms and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I can't really argue with that. I'm, I'm, I'm just frustrated because uh, I, I, I've, there are too many very talented people out there who don't fit into it, it, it's like the the school system it makes you a cog for a machine that no longer exists mm-hmm. so you learn stuff at school that is not actually that useful or applicable in real life and as a result of that you're not really you know like when you come out people are struggling to get jobs or they have to do internships and then actually learn it and stuff mm-hmm. and i think like 40 30 years ago where you used to you know leave school at 16 and get an internship and you bypass all that debt now is it well you wouldn't have debt then but you get my point i think in the short term, at least if you don't fit into a certain demographic or, or a certain box, then you're not likely to do that well in certain areas of the industry. I think when you're good enough to be you know, put somewhere, often you've missed your chance because you're too old for that. Like they just don't... Mm. The, 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 the industry, whether they want to admit it or not, is very ageist, <laughs> in my opinion. There's a huge gap, I think, at the moment between live comedy and, you know, and TV comedy. I mean, it's we're, we're sort of assuming, well, I don't want to assume here that everybody that does live comedy wants to be on TV. I'm not saying that's a natural progression, but people are looking for opportunities, obviously, to do comedy wherever. And I don't think that, you know, there are, you know, the opportunities that there used to be, as you were just saying. And I think if you look at just one little subsection of comedy, like, say, if you take sketch at the moment you can look at high energy groups like say birthday girls and beasts and then you look at Gein's family gift shop or Daphne uh, lazy Susan massive dad they're all completely different types of sketch group and that's just in one subgenre of comedy where you're having all this really sort of flowering uh, talent that's there and there's nowhere really for any of those artists to go on TV so what worries me is sometimes when you see not necessarily those sketch groups, but any sort of stand-up or anybody in comedy, they may have been coming to Edinburgh, say, for, you know, five years and have a lot of hours under their belt. They're really committed to their writing. They're doing their show, you know, every day at the Fringe and previewing it like mad. And yet they would still be described as sort of a up-and-coming, rising comedian. But I think even on the radio sometimes. And, and I think that's where, you know, there is this sort of... I'd say it's a knowledge gap, really. I don't know what the solution would be, but... We do need to get more people going to live comedy. I think that's uh, the thing, and more engaged with comedy at the live level. But how we do that is obviously a trickier thing. Yeah, I I brought you on for that answer. You need to. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the Ask New Industry podcast, episode 72. I'm Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand up, comedy, radio, and today, the Edinburgh Fringe. Ben Venables, or Ven Venables, as he doesn't like to be referred to, but I'm going to leave it in anyway, is the comedy editor at The Skinny. The Skinny is an independent arts and culture magazine that covers Edinburgh, Glasgow, Dundee and Manchester. He's been a journalist for some time, previously writing for places like The Londonist, who have been on this podcast before. I think they were episode four. If you scroll back, you should be able to find it. I got him on to talk about what it's like being inside a magazine that covers the Edinburgh Festival and the logistical nightmare that that is for him. We also talked about his thoughts on PRs, taking a solo show up as an independent comedian, and how they can develop relationships with magazines and journalists in general. We also delve into the tricky topic of student reviewers and why The Skinny does not use them. This would be a great podcast for any performer, not just comedian, just any performer, looking at taking a show up to the Edinburgh Festival 
and getting a bit of coverage, either be it a review or some sort of article written about them, but they don't have a PR or they don't have the budget for one. As always, if you're new here, please hit the subscribe button. If you're old here, please consider giving us an honest review in iTunes. And don't forget to join the Facebook group, which is called RC Industry Podcast, and it's on Facebook, obviously. But now, without any more delays, this is Ben Venables. I did this really great interview with Tony where he talked all about, you know, having depression and how we thought he had had this brilliant fringe, we really loved his show, and he was actually saying that it was a nightmare for him. And he talked all about his dog, and the dog was sort of in the background for this whole interview. And one of our illustrators, Sarah Kirk, did this really wonderful picture of him riding his black dog, and it was just perfect. And then Tony used it for his fringe poster. And nice things can happen, you yeah. see, in Edinburgh. Can you in Edinburgh, that? yeah, but the rest of the year is shit. <laughs> <laughs> But I was going to just start with how you ended up at the skinny because I think it'd be really interesting to just have like so people can get a background of you from you rather than me sort of trying to fill it in in an intro. So if you wanted to start there. Well, my background was in script reading for various film companies, which I was doing for a couple of years. But I've been living in Edinburgh for about five years, I think, and obviously going to the Fringe each year, but as a comedy fan more than any sort of professional interest. And I think, I I, I still don't know really why I sort of wrote to the skinny and said, you know, do you need any writers this year to, you know, to review or anything? And uh, I think it might have been because anyone who's in Edinburgh even comedy fans the fringe is quite incomprehensible and I think actually going and seeing it and writing about it sort of helped me make a bit of sense of it at least to myself and I think that's actually why I um, put myself forward for it but then very quickly Bonnie who was the previous section editor she moved on to um, another job and that became open and because I'd had experience working with writers and things I was sort of able to step in and I've been in that job now for it'll be coming up to two years in February. No, I've I know Vonnie a little bit. We've had back and forths in email and, and uh, stuff. I've never met her personally. She told me part of the reason she left was um, exhaustion from the amount of middle people in the fringe and the way that uh, comedians are basically the last to get paid, if you like. Um, mm-hmm. And I wondered if you felt like that's still the case or if you feel like there's not enough middle people or there's too many or just the right amount. Well, I suppose as I haven't left, I'm beyond exhaustion. Um, it's, um, it is, I would agree, yeah, it's very... The fringe is very exhausting from the journalist side, and I'm sure it's worse for comedians because we're not putting shows on, you know, every day. But I think that what you deal with, and as Vonnie would say, the, the, the middle the middle people that you, you have to deal with is just a constant barrage of sort of communication all day, every day. And there's really no way you can sort of turn off from it. And so, yeah, I think that it, it is very, very hard journalistically to sort of keep up with it. And I suppose in terms of the financial things, I mean, it's very difficult to know who is making money at the Fringe. And I think there's been, you know, lots of people and there's lots of articles, people trying to follow the money and everybody, wherever you seem to follow it, it doesn't really seem to end up anywhere. So, no, I don't know who is making money or why we all go. The flatters are definitely... (laughs) (laughs) But having said that, I mean, this year I did find the Fringe particularly stressful during it. But once it had finished, I felt to be honest quite proud of the work we'd done you know I, I'm just I can't wait for the next one and I, I, I do still feel like that and as long as I feel that way I think I'll carry on doing it that makes sense so you said it's kind of a barrage of, of contact yeah and I suppose as a performer I try and think about it from your point of view and I try and empathise but I'm never going to get that point of view because obviously I, I've done journalism work before and I've written articles but nowhere near at the level you do so I was wondering if you could maybe walk 
like the listener through an average say like day the second tuesday of edinburgh like how wh- where are you at and where is your <laughs> inbox at by the second tuesday of edinburgh you are starting to think about the backlog of reviews that you've got and whether it's going to be possible to get them on the site in time so that all of the reviews that you do throughout the fringe will be there by the end of it and so make sense to readers who are trying to go to those shows and you know if possible as as far in advance of the end of the fringe as possible because it's no point putting a review up on the last day if people can't go to that show so actually you get bogged down in a lot of that sort of administrative detail of it obviously for me i'm also editing a whole team's reviews and i'm scheduling things and by that sort of week two i'm looking at shows you know there's always shows that get missed or get cancelled and you're trying to sort of plug those gaps while also catching up on shows that maybe you didn't realise you would need to see. And so week two is very hard. Also, it's this would just be perhaps specific to my team rather than anyone else, but we try to pack all the shows into week one, as, as many as we can, simply because we know we're going to have that backlog. So I've actually got a lot less writers available in week two. And so week two is... You know, it really is just trying to sort of keep on top of the bottle effect there. So you take on extra writers for week one? Well, I have, I have a team of about 10 writers who are, you know, very much in conversations all year round. But yeah, they tend to come in very much specifically for the Fringe. And they'll go and see how many shows a day? The most we would go and see would be seven. But like a union thing, you can't go. <laughs> well, no, no, it's more that's physically the sort of limit if, if you're writing. Um, I mean, there's the guy that got the world record. I think he fit in more than that. But He can have it. <laughs> but, but seven would be, but seven is crazy. I would say we what we tried to do this year was actually do it sort of a day on, day off for people. And that seemed to work fairly well. So if you, you can do five like that, and then you have a day off and you catch up on your writing and then you go to sort of five the next day but it did feel this year a bit like sort of doing a computer game almost where you know that if you send somebody to five shows they are going to then be exhausted and if you send them to say two then you're not going to be getting the reviews in time so there's all so the fringe is such a um ecosystem that any decision you make seems to have sort of unintended uh, consequences but that really is uh, you know unfortunately that is a lot of the job it is the planning of it and and really thinking about can this person physically be at this show and sometimes uh, well, there, well there are so many shows that we want to see at the fringe having to turn down people is one of the hardest parts of the job because it does take a little you know it just takes that little bit of energy away from you because you're giving bad news which is obviously a sort of horrible thing and sometimes with the best will in the world you say to people we're going to try and get your show and then something happens and you can't and and you don't want to sort of be aloof or um you know disconnected with the comedians in edinburgh because they've come there and i think whatever tensions there are between critics and comedians you know people are trying to connect with the media and i think we do have a a sort of responsibility not to be standoffish and take an interest in what's happening in the city and you know and be supportive of the work that comedians are doing and and bring into um, edinburgh so that it is very very difficult you know because there are 
you know, 1,500 comedy shows, we can only review about 200. And then, and it's not just that, it's the availability of people and the times that the shows are on. And it all becomes sort of a ginormous spreadsheet um, more than it is an arts festival on bad days from our side. So that means about one in every, what's that, eight shows maybe will get seen at best? Yes, I think that would be, yeah, that would be about accurate. Of course, many of those... 1,000 odd shows wouldn't be appropriate to review. For instance, it'd be unusual for us to do, you know, if you've got like a showcase um, sort of thing, we probably wouldn't uh, do that. If there was a charity gala, we'd more likely do a preview of that rather than a review. So we really are interested in general in people who are doing their hour shows more than, you know, sort of five minutes at at Spank or something like that. So the number, so it's probably more likely, there's probably about a thousand that we could review, but you know, there's only then 200 slots that we can fill. Yeah, that's interesting. Because like, obviously you're on the, I mean, when I'm on the street as a performer, you're always bumping into people who are saying, they promised they'd come, they didn't come, they didn't tell me, oh, I I saved them a seat, I reserved them a ticket, all that kind of stuff. And I've always sort of felt more bad for you guys because it's sort of, they. if, if for example, I got 50 people in and you didn't turn up, I'm like, I've got 50 people in. Mm. For me, I've still got a win there whereas you've obviously had something happen that means you couldn't get to the show and i'm not saying every time it's a tragedy or every time it's you know your car broke down or whatever but there's obviously in mitigating circumstances that meant you couldn't do your job mm. and if i couldn't get to my show for me that's the bit that would annoy me the fact that i couldn't perform my job yeah yeah so i sort of i sort of empathize more on your side than a performance which i suppose is a bit of a different one for most people well, I think there is a misconception that we we just sort of rock up for shows. You know, it would be very rare for us to go without having some kind of invitation. That does, you know, I mean, that makes a difference because it does mean that you've usually had some kind of conversation with the artist or their publicist or their manager to either arrange a ticket or a date that you would be going in the case of a free show. That means that if anything does happen, there's a whole lot of admin to go with that. And sometimes it, it would, I, I wish we could just rock up at shows because then there wouldn't actually be that sort of, you know, implied contract that, you know, that, you know, that there's going to be a review uh, and things or the or that you've let somebody down if, if, you know, you just can't make it. But I think overall it is better that, you know, it is open. I think it's only fair that artists, both at the free fringe and at the paid fringe, know when somebody's coming. And we tried really hard this year to make sure that in almost all cases that we had arranged, you know, to go. And that can be very hard because some comedians, for example, will want a reviewer, but they don't necessarily want to know which day they're coming because, you know, they don't want that extra pressure there. So we tried to respect and get around that because I think it's, you know, I think it's a fair thing. It's very, it's easy if you if you have a publicist to do that. It's not so easy if you're dealing with it directly. So we took into account all sorts of things like that this year, which I think we did much better than my first year where I was just sort of trying to get through it. But it was, you know, as I say, administratively, it was very difficult. And, you know, it's a shame that that's what happens at the fringe and you remember all of that kind of thing. But just to sort of temper what I'm saying, I mean, 
this fringe, I'm not really going to remember any of that. It's only in this conversation, the, f the things I remember about this fringe are like Richard Gadd's show and actually crying down Cowgate as I will buy or Scott Gibson's show, which was just, you know, really lovely um, sort of Billy Connolly type of show, you know, which was a real hospital drama. Uh, and they're the things that you do remember and I think that you know we are all going because we love the shows that we go into but yeah it is it is obviously very very hard on that way yeah I, I, I didn't get a see Gad show in Edinburgh unfortunately it was just full all the time mm. but I saw it in London and I was talking to Bruce about this because it was really interesting because he, he said obviously it wasn't the funniest show that he'd seen uh, yet but it won the award and for me that was really an interesting because that was the first time in a while that n not necessarily s somewhere near the funniest show won that award and I was wondering if although it's definitely an award-winning show did you did you still agree with that award or do you think it was miscategorized in a certain way or no I think Richard Gadd himself said at the end that yeah. um, <laughs> you know he regrets not you know it not being a comedy show I actually did think it was really funny for the most part you know it used a technique very similar on peep show you know where you have a sort of interior monologue and I think that what that show allowed him to do was to use comedy as you know, as it is very effective in doing, it is, you know, it brings up a serious subject in a way that allows people into it. And I think, so I think in that sense, it was actually a very traditional comedy hour, despite the fact that it was on a treadmill. And I suppose, you know, I mean, another writer described it to me as a sort of immersive theatre, really. But for me, it was still very much recognisably a stand-up hour and was still funny. The other thing, I suppose that a lot of people say about Edinburgh hours is, you know, do you need to have a, a sort of emotional sucker punch to, you know, get the show sort of noticed by critics? I think in Gad's case, it was a very sincere show. So it's only when sort of people dim the lights in a phony way that that is actually quite annoying. And annoying if, as critics, we sort of fall for that, obviously. But I think when somebody does it very, very well, and I saw a lot of shows this year which did have that sort of emotional punch, but it, you know, when it is done sincerely and uh, truthfully, then you know you get that comedy and with that sort of emotional depth as well. So I would say that you know Gads was you know definitely definitely should have won the award in every way that you look at it. Really, I, I really did. You know, there are a lot of good shows, obviously, but maybe it's because you know I'm the editor of the sort of Scottish magazine and we've been speaking to Richard Gad at Skinny since he was 21 but yeah I mean I think we're all rooting for him a bit this year. Yeah. No I really enjoyed the show I just wondered what you thought of that kind of conversation and that, mm. and that take on it. How, how do you, so because obviously you've only got say one in five shows that you can go and see What's your selection process like? I mean, is it the earlier you get in, the more likely? Or is it you kind of are allowed to editorially pick and choose because the magazine don't sort of tie you to a narrative because, you know, you've done a, done a review of someone last year, maybe next year you have to do the same to keep it going? Or... Well, the, the Skinny are very good, I have to say, because obviously where um, the Skinny differ from a site like Chortle or Bruce's Beyond a Joke is that we're a magazine with lots of different sections. And I have to respect that as... The comedy section, it's only one part of the magazine. And actually, us going bananas at the fringe and doing all this actually puts a lot of pressure on all the office staff who are trying to write the next month's issue. <laughs> um, and um, and I, I really sort of hope that I got that a bit more this year. Really tried to organise myself in a way that helped them. The reason that's important is because the skinny have been 
and, and Ros, my the editor-in-chief there, has always been very good. Is that I've never had any pressure to cover any one show or another. I've never been told you've got to do this number of shows or this type of show. I am also, you know, sort of attentive that the skinny, you know, it has a certain demographic. It's in Edinburgh all year round. And, um, you know, many of its readers will be students and in that age group. So I suppose I would be looking at shows that are going to suit that demographic maybe more than others but to be honest I think I'm fairly even-handed so that might be something that sort of plays on my mind but only in like a tie-break situation and then I think there is uh, you know there are there are it, we do have a bit of a tradition of seeing sort of quite quirky shows so sometimes somebody will email me I remember a couple of years ago Louise Ray did the show in Chinese I love that show yeah, yeah. Uh, and she said in her email and it was one of the rare cases where I've agreed with somebody where they've said you know I think my show will be a really good fit with the skinny we won't only cover those quirky shows but it was one which did stand out of yes we're, we're definitely going to that one but in terms of sort of you know I mean I mean, we're up, we are up for going to see anyone that we don't seek out shows, obviously, that we feel aren't ready. And, you know, sometimes you do have to make a judgment about that and accept that we're going to be wrong sometimes. But generally, we do have the comedian's best interests at heart, which sounds very phony, but we wouldn't seek out a show that, you know, we don't... We are looking for good shows. Every show I go to, I'm hoping to give, you know, at least a four to in terms of a star rating so that's what we're looking for you know is this a good show is it you know is it going to get a good review is it going to excite our readers all those questions go through my head as I'm sort of putting together the schedule do I have a writer who is suited to this show is another one we have a a great writer in our team for the last couple of years uh, Jenny Ajadirian who has very good knowledge of magic and magic sort of comedy shows now without her we wouldn't have covered those but because she has a skill in doing it we were able to sort of open up that avenue if we had somebody who was very interested in sketch comedy we might cover more of that year so I do think about sort of not we try not to think obviously same things to people to things that they absolutely love because that would have other problems but you know if somebody has an interest in a, in a particular group of comedy shows then we, we try to sort of look at it that way in terms of people getting in early that is definitely something that helps I would say you don't want to get in too early because you can actually feel a bit fatigued of a show by the time it comes to Edinburgh you know we're all human and you know and I'd say that that's just general advice it's not necessarily for journalists you don't want to get the hype for your show in sort of January because by the time it's got to August you're actually thinking oh well you've seen something else you know a sort of new sparkly show that you want to go to but definitely you know the spring and around the time that you know the big four program and the stand program comes out you know, and, and just a bit before the main programme is sort of just when to sort of time that right. And um, and also just giving, you know, I'm assuming I'm answering this from the point of view of somebody sort of independent yeah. uh, writing. Just having all the information at hand, really, it, it's surprising sometimes, you know, how much gets left off. And, and things like good quality images and things that we need. Otherwise, it's very difficult to run a review without that. And, you know spending the fringe chasing that kind of stuff is not fun for anybody and only delays everybody's review so it's just getting 
all that stuff. And because if everything's on the system, even if that show's not on your initial schedule, if you've got everything there and then you have a cancellation or you have somebody that becomes available, that's the show you go to because obviously it's much easier. But definitely, definitely. And you said that the demographic is students or, or student tea. Uh, well, it's in Edinburgh, it's obviously a very large student population. So I wouldn't say that's the skinny's demographic per se, just that in Edinburgh, that is going to be the majority of the readers. Okay, because I was going to ask, there's a lot of split buzz between student reviewers and whether people mm-hmm. think they're a good thing or a bad thing. And I wondered where you stood on that. Mm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very difficult question, that. I think if you've got a reviewer that is engaged with comedy and with the art form and is taking it seriously, I don't actually think that age is such an important thing. And I mean, funnily enough, a lot of the things that um, sort of received wisdom about student reviewers is that, you know, they are, you know, sort of babies that, um, you know, don't know what they're talking about. It's quite patronising, some of that. I think, you know, I think sometimes it's, you know, they're often highly intelligent people who are actually giving up their time because they want to go to comedy shows. But given that, I have, like everybody else, read a lot of very, very atrocious reviews and that's because and it's not just with students I think it was true of my earliest reviews is that some chill comes over you when you start writing for publication particularly with reviews where you it takes a little while to find your own voice if that makes sense and you tend to pump it up with you know sort of you know sort of hyperbole and and stuff so I think what happens at the fringes you have a lot of people going who aren't necessarily bad writers and aren't necessarily you know disengaged with comedy it's just that it might be their first writing gig and they're nervous and they want to impress and they try too hard so I think that happens a lot on the other hand I mean I'm a little bit of a hypocrite because my team does tend to be you know we haven't got too many students in it and the ones that have applied either tend to be postgraduate or have very sort of specific reasons and a journalistic background and that is something I I really look for but the main thing I look for in writers is you know if somebody hasn't heard of Stuart Lee you know they're not gonna write for us one of one of the writers that did come with us this year um, Tamara she actually had this really in-depth knowledge of the Indian comedy scene because she's from Bangalore I think she thought that I was being very sort of over overdoing her training by um, sort of trying to bring her up to speed with you know the British comedy scene and and everything and but then when she was at the the fringe you know she said you know it really you really do need to have that that sort of knowledge there and to be able to apply it so yeah I mean you're looking for people that can write and you're looking for people mainly that are going to be engaged with comedy and treat comedy as an art form and aren't just sort of going to take the piss yeah definitely definitely I mean there's all kinds of things that get said about student reviewers, like they're just in it for the free tickets and whatever. And I imagine to get to the stage of being a reviewer, especially for a, for a um, established publication, it wouldn't get to that if it you know if that was the case, or at least I'd like to think it wouldn't. Well, it's it's obviously it's tempting to take on students because then you can cover more shows, and the less writers that you have, the more pressure it puts on everybody to do that. But but on the other hand, I mean, again, it's like I was saying, it's a little bit like a computer game. It's this year, you know, I, I found that 
if I had a smaller team, okay, we've all got more pressure on it, but it is actually easier to manage when you've got more people, you know, you, you've got to manage a bigger team and that in itself also brings a lot of difficulties. But I think I think for us, having a slightly smaller team was nice because it meant that we all knew each other a little bit. Fringe Reviewing at the Fringe can actually be a very lonely experience because you're going to shows often on your own, which is quite an odd thing to do, really, to go to a comedy show on your own. If you don't know the number, you know, the other writers that are on your team, it can be a very odd thing. And, you know, this year we did, we all really spoke to each other sort of throughout and and everything. So it's not just about sort of, you know, student reviews and the age of an individual one. It's looking, I think, at, you know, a team of reviewers as a whole, because Fringe is such a big thing, you do need a sort of a project management approach to it, which again, I make it sound so boring, but that is what the job is, really, of um, sort of managing it from our side. To, to be fair, when someone talks to me about stand-up and they go, oh, it looks so exciting, I go, there's a lot of admin. Like, <laughs> it's like they, they see, oh, he gets up on stage and does, what, 20 minutes or something, and it's like, that. well, you do the rest of the day. I'm like, it's a lot of emails. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess it's the same thing at your end where, you know, we look at it and we, you know, we see going to re- review a thing, but in reality there's weeks of planning that go into that beforehand that mean that, you know, you can do your job, essentially. Yeah. And, and I suppose uh, I want to kind of ask you very briefly about what you the other side of that so you, we were talking about independent comedians contacting you for for reviews or for articles or for whatever it was if it was a pr person what are your thoughts or takes on pr it, it's um there's so many different types of publicist and i think that's a very important distinction to make for example the you know the big four venues as they're known will all have an in-house publicist that is able to go through their their program. And then you have obviously a lot of independent publicists, some who are very experienced, who've been doing the Fringe for years, other people that you suspect are maybe just starting out and taking a bit of a chance on it. And there's other things where you get not necessarily a publicist approaching you, but if if somebody like, say, Adam Larter sends me an email and I have a collection of all of the weirdo shows, he's not technically acting as a publicist but it does act as a sort of quite convenient thing for a journalist i think there's a lot of anxiety about the publicist at the fringe because obviously it's another cost and i think that it's it's got to be a personal choice about what is right for you i think there's a lot of solutions like that like where if you're with a group like weirdos or in scotland we've got a collective called chunks and they've been absolutely brilliant at sort of promoting each other's shows and it's really really exciting and with those you sort of feel actually they don't need that they maybe don't need a traditional publicist at the moment because what they're doing it acts in that way if you're quite personable you know if you're sort of on your own you're a stand-up you're doing your first hour you know you're, you're personable and things then you know dropping an email saying a bit about your show is going to get my attention just as much as anything else and there's been a number of people that have been very successful at doing that in the last few years. Ahir Shah, he um, has written on spec and has had a whole slew of great reviews over the last couple of years. I think he's been signed up by Avalon now to be fair (laughs) but you know he's somebody that just comes to mind as somebody that you know that has just written on spec, just been very straightforward about what a show's about, it sounds interesting so you go. But then on the other hand it might be that you know, if you're a comedian that and you don't want to write a press release and you don't maybe know 
what the best way to sell your own work is, which is you know, a perfectly legitimate artistic concern, then that would be where you know, maybe going for a publicist would be a better idea. And I think, you know, and, and then it, it's a case of sort of choosing the right one. I think that the staff at the venues all work extremely hard in the press offices. Is in the big four? Big four, the stand, and um, well, I think all of it, I think anybody that is sort of involved with the venues, you know, they do all, you know, they really do bat hard on their behalf. And, you know, whatever you think of individual uh, venues and things, it is impressive that there are people, you know, really, really, you know, getting the message out for comedy. So there are publicists that I'd get on very well with, you know, I'm thinking sort of the stand who we have a year-long relationship with, so Jen and Anthony there. You know, because you have that relationship year-round, it's a very different kind of conversation when the fringe comes to somebody that maybe, you know, I don't know. But, you know, pub- publicists, you know, they do have a place because, you know, there's for convenience. And obviously publicists aren't just going to be talking to the press, they're also going to be looking at getting other industry figures in. But it, it does have to be a personal choice and I've never advised somebody to go for a publicist if they were just starting out. You know, there's probably better things you can spend your money on. But if you're at that point in your career and, you know, you don't want to be waylaid with contacting the press every day, then obviously it's a good investment. But you need to find the publicist that is a good fit for you because they do all have very different skill sets. Oh, totally, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm finding from talking to them. And, I mean, I'm, I don't know where I'm at in terms of publicists in terms of having one or trying to get one. I just, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I find if I do a good enough show, enough people tend to come and then I'll contact reviewers at the other end of that. And I think, for me, that's more healthy for me than chasing, like, you know, industry uh, acclaim or anything like that. Because it means I'm just focusing on the audience, which ultimately are the sort of ones that, because, I mean, Hopefully they'd come back every year. You, you guys might, like you said, you've got one in five, so it doesn't necessarily mean you'll come back every year. So yeah, for me, it's really interesting to know your relationships with them, as obviously every reviewer has a different one, but obviously every editor has a completely different mindset on it because you'll be getting... I mean, do, do you get all the emails then and like so filter them for the different reviewers, or does everyone pretty much get emailed directly you've already said that you kind of pick the reviewer that would probably go best with the show so is it a case of the comedy at the skinny email address goes to you and you deal with all that yeah i think at the skinny uh, particularly with the fringe i tend to be a little bit i sort of become a real tyrant at the, at the fringe <laughs> and um, um because it would just be so complicated for everybody was being bombarded and my writers don't want that they just want to turn up at the shows and not deal with all of the the hype but year round I'm a lot more sort of fluid and writers pitch things and they will have relationships with you know they will have contacts not just with publicists but it might be with a local comedy club that I don't necessarily know about and because it's just started and they'll write to me so good ideas can then come from anywhere for content but obviously at the fringe there's so much communication going forward it makes sense to have one point of contact you know, I suppose you worry, you know, if, if a new writer sort of starts pitching shows to you and you know that it's because a publicist is talking to them rather than they've heard organically that these shows are good. That would worry me, but that, you know, that hasn't happened because um, generally my team were either, they're either experienced journalistically enough to 
know better or they're in it for the comedy and don't care about other people's recommendations they try and find out their own thing I suppose there's two questions that come out of that the first one would probably be what do you make of star star rating systems and two do you think that a review starts word of mouth or do you think getting a review review comes as a result of word of mouth with star ratings I like a lot of critics can't stand them (laughs) you know if I was running a comedy site I would be very tempted to ditch them altogether and I think there's better ways to present what you are recommending the crux of the star ratings comes down to the free star review if we could all agree that free meant good rather than I've got no emotional response to your show whatsoever and people saw it as good publicity rather than as saying it was average that would solve a lot of problems but it would only do exactly the same as if we dropped them all together and I would be in favour of that because I do think it's sort of it's disrespectful when you're talking about somebody's art to sort of assign it a rating of five and I think everybody knows that it's just convenience why it happens but having said that that is very much my personal view it you know it would be impossible really to change the star ratings in a magazine where every section uses them if we just went off and did our own thing it would be an incredibly odd and eccentric thing to do and it would be very odd at the fringe to go against what is the norm for better or worse i think like a lot of your guests i would love it if we just all agreed to drop them but i have to say whenever i floated that idea it does meet resistance from every you know from every quarter and that includes comedians that includes publicists because it is seen, I think Bruce DeSalle actually said on this podcast, it's seen as a necessary evil. And so I think now, wearily, I've just accepted that we're stuck with them and it's up to us to be sort of responsible in how we dish them out and whatever people sort of make of that. It's, you know, it's not our... Unfortunately, it's not our fault, really, that... Um, you know, I say, unfortunately, it's... You know, people see shows that you are saying are very good and that you are recommending but you might not necessarily think are brilliant. And unfortunately, people take those reviews as you dismiss in a work. And I think a lot of good publicity goes down the drain there and a lot of effort for us, but that's where we are. And until we can come up with sort of an alternative system that is as easy for everybody and sort of universally applicable, I don't know. So I guess, I guess at the end, my, my thing would be it's the, the best, worst system, one of those situations. But before you answer the other question, can I ask, what you so say you went to a show and gave it five four three mm-hmm. however many stars what are you thinking that represents or denotes five would be something that really moved me in a way that you know i wouldn't have to sort of come out a changed man but you are hoping to see some spark of magic in um you know in that in that hour and when i say moved i don't mean you know the as I was saying earlier, the sort of emotional thing. I mean, it might be that I go from a very bad mood to a very good one because I've been in that comedy show. So, so you know, you have to have some sort of, you know, change um, that sort of happens during that show. So that would be my personal definition of a five. Four, I think, really does have to be very, very good. You have to be able to recommend it to people and stand by that recommendation and not feel anybody's going to go to that show and say, I don't know why you recommended that. And I think three is the is always the difficult one and that's because it does encompass 
shows that are almost bloody brilliant, but just not quite. They've got something that has, you know, there might be a dip somewhere and you can't quite do it. And they're very frustrating to write about. But, you know, on the whole, three means, you know, it's good and very straightforwardly good. But yes, I mean, I think the star ratings, they do have the problem in that we all have our own definitions of them. But going back until we have a better system, we're sort of stuck with them. Two stars? Two stars is... Um, I know she tried to avoid that. I have, <laughs> in the past, tried to write nice two-star reviews, which usually uh, sort of people laugh at that. But um, two can just mean, you know, the show just didn't quite work out or left you a bit cold. That's something, you know, you often get shows that are technically very good. But there, so it's very difficult with twos. I think with twos, I always try to make sure people aren't dismissing shows and actually trying to accentuate what was, you know, what was good about it and why that two is there. But, you know, it does obviously also mean, you know, a show just isn't very good and you're trying to avoid it as well. I mean, that's what most people would would read into it. But it, it can be a difficult rating because, you know, if you go to a show that just hasn't worked, but you can see that it has a lot of value in it, two really does seem to condemn it in a way that it shouldn't. And one? One, I think, has got to be so flamboyantly bad. Would, um, would you even print a one-star review? Would you just leave Well, the skinny used to have a policy of not doing so. But I think then once you start not publishing reviews for, for certain shows, then you get into a situation where, you know, you're, you're picking, you know, which reviews you publish and which ones you don't, which shows you go to and which you don't. And um, it actually gives us a little bit too much control. And it's very open to corruption because, you know, if you go to a show and you just haven't got time to write it up, somebody could just say to me, oh, well, I didn't like it, so... What's the point in writing it? And I think for readers, it's important that you know they know that they're getting honest reviews. And unfortunately, it is the negative reviews that do show that. Otherwise, you know, you might as well have a sort of advertorial type of publication where everything's you know good news. But you know, I mean, nobody, as I said earlier, I mean, we all go to shows hoping. Certainly, I hope to give a four for every, at least a four for every show I go to because you want to have a good hour. You know, and sometimes, um, you know, you, you have to just say, you know, why something hasn't worked. Have the skinny ever, because it was a rumour talk on the scene, not the skinny, but generally a magazine saying there's only a limited number of five stars they can give and there's only a limited number of one stars, for example. Has that ever been an actual policy? It's never a policy. Um, there's certainly never a quota, but you have to sort of keep the star ratings consistent as much as you can within your team of writers. So if you have somebody sort of going and being very trigger happy, and then you've got somebody else going around like a bear with a sore head, you have to somehow make them meet and say, you know, you are giving stars for a publication, not as, um, not just as an individual. And we have to have, you know, some kind of, I mean, it's ridiculous because obviously it's such a subjective system, but, you know, you try to sort of put in you know, definitions that we all agree on. But I think, I mean, we had a lot less five stars this year than in normal years. And that was partly because, you know, we all, we all kept talking every five star has to sort of, every, every time somebody wants to give a five star, we now have, we all have to have a conversation about it and we have to sort of decide whether um, that should happen. But it's not through a quota in that, it's through responsible sort of journalism and I would hope that's true of other publications as well I would hope nobody's saying you know you can only give 
uh, so many of, of this because when you do go to a show and it, it's a five and if you I mean I had a writer that went to two shows in one night and gave them both fives and they went through but he really really had to argue for them and um, you know I actually thought he was gonna um, you know I thought we might have a fallout at one point but the fact that I saw how serious he was about it meant that I knew those two shows uh, were worth five and why they went through and um, and I think that is you know something at the fringe where there is so much saturation of stars it is important um, you know to make sure that they are being given fairly and consistently. My, my second part of that question was whether you think a review starts word of mouth or whether word of mouth encourages you as an editor or a reviewer to go and see a show. I'm not sure whether a review on its own starts word of mouth. I mean the word of mouth definitely happens at the fringe because I mean you hear things in in queues and there's so many people sort of in close proximity that you know people are talking about shows and it is very wonderful when it happens organically um, and it happens that way round. We looked brilliant a couple of years ago because we got to see more Mace's show and gave it a really good review and then he got he was sort of the surprise nomination that year and I'd actually heard his show was brilliant in a queue in the hive and then sent a reviewer the next day to see it so it definitely does happen um, and we perhaps should have been seeing Seymour Mace anyway and we probably would have done but we got to him a lot quicker um, because I was stood in a certain place in the hive you know which wasn't even his venue so that definitely happens but I think a lot of what we think is word of mouth has often come through some press at some point you know there's a lot of preview material at the fringe where people are doing interviews even people's posters you know that make certain shows stand out more than others so even before the fringe has started there's already a lot of talk of you know oh, i'd quite like to see this show and somebody just saying an off-the-cuff remark like that seems like a validation of that show and seems like word of mouth when actually it might be that they've you know just read a, a playlist on chortle or something with that artist so i think it's very i think it's almost impossible to distinguish you know where word of mouth and where actual press publicity um sort of happens but where I think reviews, I mean, I, I sort of, I'd love to say reviews aren't important and actually dismiss them, which might seem an odd stance to take. But I have seen, you know, this year particularly, you know, that they can, you know, make a real difference at the fringe. And they, the interesting thing is that all of the reviews were all reading each other and nobody wants to miss out. So I think that it's just human thing and it's perhaps unfortunate but sometimes when somebody gets a good review from say us and somebody hasn't covered that then another reviewer from another publication will go in and that will build up you know a sort of effect and that's not always through a publicist sort of masterminding that um, although sometimes it is that's sometimes just through journalists thinking oh that sounds like a great show I want to go and see that as well and where, and where do you see well maybe you know the plan for the skinny in the next year five years but where do you see in general print media going is it going to all go online is it going to stay the same and, and do you think it still has the same impact both within the skinny and other publications that you read well I think one of the saddest things that's happened in the last year is obviously Time Out losing their comedy section I think Ben Williams was an absolutely outstanding editor and it's you know and, and the way he was covering the London comedy scene which is you know so vibrant and there's so much happening to lose that you know just on the basis that they were changing their sort of corporate priorities 
you know, sort of says a lot really about the sort of things that we're facing in, in print journalism and online journalism, obviously. Um, you know, any journalism that is sort of engaged with a certain thing specifically, as he was. You know, I mean, I, I doubt anyone really sort of looked at what he was doing, appreciated it. You know, that decision was taken for completely different reasons, as I understand it. And the trouble is, things like that are just happening all the time now in comedy, and, and particularly, particularly in comedy. And, you know, so many, you know, journalists with the experience that you would want to come to your show, or at least if you don't want them, you can't really argue that they don't have the knowledge to be there. You know, as the money gets squeezed out and as... Um, as you know print contracts we, we're losing a lot of you know really really good journalists you know and we can you know you can count them you can look at Julian Hall who's been on this podcast I mean he was a critic but he's now in um, publicity and you know the independent who we used to write for have contracted a lot and I think you know every year there's somebody else that isn't able to make a living out of arts journalism but then you lose people. At the Skinny, we've lost, you know, Bernard O'Leary, who used to be the, the comedy editor. I mean, he must have, as a journalist, one of the best knowledges of comedy in the country, and he's not writing about it. And the fact that he can't make a living out of writing about comedy, as none of us can, you know, I think that, you know, comedy does suffer as a result of that, because, as I say, you know, as much as we all uh, um, sort of might not get on at times at the fringe there is obviously a sort of symbiotic relationship there and I think particularly with Time Outs because it has been so important had such history of support in the London comedy scene and sort of take it away you know I, I don't agree with that decision I think it was really needless but also you lose somebody like Ben Williams who just knew so much had such a sort of independent voice so I know I've sort of answered a general question with a with a specific there, but that is the danger of what's happening all over. No, I think it's a good example of, of what you're trying to illustrate there. So, no, I don't think it was general. <laughs> My last question before we go into the final questions would be, because we were talking before we even started about TV and, and basically the industry around Edinburgh, essentially. And I was wondering what your relationship is with that, because a lot of comedians work to a new Edinburgh hour, but a lot of comedians see it as a springboard yes. for the rest of their year. And so... I wondered whether you even, because obviously you're covering so much other stuff locally in, in Scotland, that are you keeping up with, you know, people that are now moving to TV, people who are moving to radio, people who are doing tours all of a sudden? Trying to. It's, um, <laughs> it's a big part of it to sort of see, you know, where people's careers are, are going. I mean, the odd thing about The Fringe is obviously that it is both like a starting point and destination for shows. It's... Um, it, it's the cycle and grip of it is that comedians are having to sort of work very hard all year to put a finished product on in Edinburgh that is going to be ready for people to come and say what they want about it. But at the same time, I would never sort of assume that, you know, there is something of a work in progress element at Edinburgh as well. Comedians go in there to get better at what they do and to, you know, craft a show daily, which might be very different on day 23 than it was on day one. And there are people that are going as, you know, to improve as comedians. There are obviously other people that go in as a sort of launch pad. There are so many different fringes in that festival, if you like. In terms of TV, I think we are saying just before we started recording that the opportunities you know don't seem to be there anymore and you know I'd, I'd have to sort of look into fact checking this but it does seem to be that we're in a very risk averse phase of uh, certainly in tv comedy um, and i always find it very odd that 
a comedian that might say get say on radio you know you might get a spot on the now show they might be described as an up-and-coming comedian yet they might have been coming to the fringe for five years and they might have been nominated for awards and and things and so there's a knowledge gap there between the live scene and what um, other avenues there are for comedians to go into and i think that's a great shame because i think what we see in america at the moment just in the last year there have been you know really phenomenal sitcoms that are very much born out of stand-up so you can look at lady dynamite by uh, maria banford um, one mississippi you know these are you know really innovative shows that I can't really see how they would get sort of made here. The BBC is very complex because obviously on the one hand it gets criticised for being quite, you know, sort of seeped in nostalgia at the moment with, you know, are you being served remakes and that. But on the other hand it is still the place where, you know, Dame Baptiste is having his, um, you know, sitcom sort of done and, you know, all the pilots and even the pilots that didn't get made. I really like Fern Brady's one, Radges, from the year before uh, last. and. You know, it's, and I would hope that somebody else sees that and maybe picks it up. But it leaves a lot to chance, I think, at the moment, because those opportunities are so scattergun. You know, there doesn't seem to be sort of pathways for, you know, obvious pathways for people to go to, and a lot of it is down to chance. Why I think it's a real shame is because I do think Edinburgh is still, for all its flaws, it is still, you know, one of the most exciting things we have in the UK comedy scene. And you've got people there who aren't just chancers who are sort of trying to work on a script. Comedians that go there are really committed and really have that artistic courage to put themselves on the line. And I think that they're exactly the people that um, you would hope, you know, film TV commissioners or whatever other avenue they could take their careers in other than stand-up and sketch comedy would be going to but you know unfortunately I, I don't think it always sort of happens like that and there isn't the investment or the knowledge um, for that to happen. No, totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do the quick fire last questions for you. Um, so they're as quick as um, for me but you take as long as you want. So what are the best books on writing stand-up or comedy that you've ever read? Uh, one I've really enjoyed recently is um, Cliff Nesteroff's The Comedians which has like a whole history of stand-up and it's an American perspective. Um, but it even has like the origins of the term stand-up, which he thinks might come from boxing. And it has all sorts of things about when like, you know, comedy, comedians and were really in um, the sort of grip of the prohibition era and things. So really, really entertaining history and should really be read alongside Oliver Double's books in the UK, which sort of chart comedies rise through music hall. I think Bruce DeSales' books are really good, as are pretty much all of his opinion pieces on Beyond a Joke. Obviously sort of by comedians. I mean, Stuart Lee's book is an obvious one, but I think that what he's done in um, Certain Fate is to have transcript of a comedy show and then to have those footnotes is something so rare and so unpreserved about most shows that it's actually sort of a real privilege to sort of see that. And I think that book is quite outstanding in offering something that treats comedy as the art it is and really goes into detail in quite an academic way. I mean, it's still a very entertaining book, but it, it really does have respect for the art form, you know, that, that, that's, that's there. I'm trying to think, so there's so many and uh, you know, I don't want to uh, miss things out, but I suppose away from books, I do think that there are a lot of very good critics still active in comedy. And if you're trying to sort of follow the news, I would recommend people 
you know, follow Jay Richardson and um, Bruce DeSalle, who, you know, are coming up with, you know, stories. And they don't just focus on live comedy. They are sort of, you know, putting out things about things that are getting commissioned and that. So I think there are still people that if you want to follow the comedy scene, contemporary, not just sort of history books I've mentioned, there are people that, you know, you can sort of go to to do that. You've kind of answered about four questions there, so I'm really, <laughs> so it works out quite well. I'm going to end it on, what is the best bit of advice you've ever been given and what is one bit of advice you would give to a comedian who wants to get either a review or an article in the skinny during the fringe? The best bit of advice I think I've been given... I don't know. Uh, I think I, I try to. Um, I assume you mean in work rather than it can be anything. It can be um, anything. Life. I think with you know when it when it comes to the fringe, it, it's it it just has to be sort of managing expectations and not making promises you can't keep. I think would be um, how to sum it up. It's very easy to sort of try to be the nice guy and try to be everybody's friend, and that you know bites you back. But yeah, just trying to keep it, you know, manageable and, and just trying to sort of get on with it. And and I think just however much people sort of feel it's not fair that you went to their show or their review was unfair, if you feel that you've done a, a good job and, and you know that you've been, you know you've done a good job, then to be satisfied with that, which sounds a bit sad really. But, um, but that is definitely the best advice. And that came from Bernard O'Leary, who used to have the job. And he said, you know, sometimes you just have to... Um, you know, trust that you're doing a good job and that has to be enough. And then, you know, eventually somebody might <laughs> say. In terms of, what was the follow-on? The, what, one the, bit of advice for a performer who wants to get a review. I think it's about having a good show and putting all your effort into having an hour that's ready. It's very easy for me to say, though, because I'm not the one I'm doing that. And I think if you're a performer, if you've got five minutes, it, you still might feel it's the last time you're going to be on stage so you want everybody to come but sort of approaching the press when you're ready to do it and I think that is you know and having a sort of sensible approach and having an honest sort of conversation about where your comedy is at because what you don't want to do is sort of get an interview or something before you're ready and then miss out the next year uh, when you have a great show because we've already interviewed you you know and it's somebody else's turn and being aware I think that you know the press we are you know, we can't give one person constant coverage. You know, we have to be balanced. And so the advice I would give a comedian is to be aware of that and, if possible, to, you know, try to play to their own sort of advantage and strengths with it. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Brilliant. No, thanks. I really enjoyed that. That was Ben. I've been meaning to meet up with him for ages. He's a big fan of this podcast. Hello, Ben. I'm sure you're listening to your own episode. And he really knows his stuff. And for me, the standout bits were about how he has less reviewers in the second week than the first week and how much planning goes into it from his end and how he can't just go mad during the fringe because it will harm the magazine in the long term. For me, just getting it in his mind and getting it in the mind of the publication itself is just invaluable at my end as a performer but just generally it gives me a better understanding of why first of all PRs work so hard but also why independent comedians work so hard to get reviews because if they're only reviewing one in five which I think was his statistic of course they're not going to be able to cover every show and so if you get one review at the Edinburgh Fringe you should be happy let alone two or three or six I think it's just made me a lot more grateful for the work they put in and also when I get a review let alone 20 of them it doesn't matter about the number of reviews, it matters about the amount of 
positive press that you produce for yourself and that doesn't necessarily have to come from a magazine or a publication. I'd just like to give a big shout out to Angel Comedy at the Bill Murray for giving me a place to record this and being constantly supportive of this project and podcast and pretty much everything I'm doing. So thank you very much to Barry, Sarah and everyone, everyone there. You've been amazing. Thank you so much. Do go and give Ben or the Angel team a thank you on Twitter. You can find the links in the show notes or on my website, which is simonkane.co.uk. If you've got any value out of it, it's just nice to be nice and give back to people who have given up their time to help you. Also, don't forget that you can leave a review in iTunes and you can also join the Facebook group. Or while you're on my website looking for those links, you can give me a donation via PayPal, which would be a one-off donation, or via Patreon, which is from $1 an episode. Please do consider helping out this project to continue by picking one way to support it and doing that. It really helps everything you do makes a massive difference to this and the future of the project. So carry on supporting it if you can. But for now, thanks for listening, thanks for reviewing, and thanks for donating if you do. And I'll see you all in about 15 days' time. Bye!